You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. When is a pen not just a pen? Psychiatrists have been buzzing about the Katie trial ever since results were first published in 2005. Most non-psychiatrists are unaware of its widespread implications. What have we learned about antipsychotic selection? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Gibson. Dr. Gibson is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Director of Psychiatry Residency Education at University of Michigan and an attending psychiatrist on the University of Michigan Medical Center Adult Inpatient Unit. He serves on the American Psychiatric Association Committee on Corporate Support and Michigan Psychiatric Society Council and Ethics Committee. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, Dr. Gibson, let's start off with a brief overview of the Katie trial. Yes, the Katie trial was a large National Institute of Mental Health comparison of the newer atypical antipsychotics. I think it was in part a response to a large number of industry-sponsored trials that compared head-to-head these drugs and a lot of concern about how applicable those data were. It was also an attempt to, to find out just how good these medications were when they were used in the community. Effectiveness trials differ from efficacy trials. Efficacy trials are all about a comparison with a drug versus placebo, finding out if the drug does something in a highly specialized population. Lots of exclusions are included for patients that are going to be in those studies. The KD trial was about going into the community and seeing in real-world patients what happens when you give a patient with an established diagnosis of schizophrenia one of the atypical antipsychotic medications. And rather provocatively, they threw in one of the older drugs, perfenazine, a conventional antipsychotic, to see if there was any difference between the newer drugs and the older drugs. So this was real world and not funded by pharmaceutical companies? Correct. This was paid for by the National Institutes of Mental Health. There were very few exclusions. This was patients who were really receiving care in the community. And so a lot of the usual exclusions in efficacy trials, such as medical comorbidities, substance abuse, things along those lines, did not exclude patients from this trial. Which, of course, any of us that have done these trials, the efficacy trials, know how hard it is to find pure patients that have none of these coexisting conditions. That's right. And most centers, no more than about 5% of patients qualify for the efficacy trials. And so this was trying to get a broader view of, of the community. And the outcome here was different as well. Instead of having a lot of formal scales about uh, which aspects of psychosis were improving, um, the study looked very simply at how long a patient stayed on the medication that they were originally assigned to. Okay, so assuming if they stayed on the med, it must be doing something positively. Right. The end point was defined as all-cause discontinuation. So if they stopped because it wasn't working or they stopped because they had unacceptable side effects, that all got thrown into the same pool. Unfortunately, if they stopped just because they got sick of being part of the trial, that also got included as a treatment failure. But this was a way of trying to find out what happens when you take the kind of patients that we're usually treating for schizophrenia in the community at a community mental health agency the kind of patients where you're thinking about long-term treatment instead of short-term treatment, it really did capture one of the big challenges in schizophrenia treatment, which is uh, keeping patients in treatment. So what did we learn from this trial? It was interesting that a lot of us who were, who were making predictions about what the outcome of this trial would be actually got it wrong. 
I was among those who suggested that there probably wouldn't be any differences among any of these drugs in terms of how effective they were, that is, how long patients stayed on them or what percentage of patients did well with them. And that included the older drug, profenazine. I suggested this part correctly, that there would be differences in the quality of, of side effects that patients got, that each drug would have different side effects, but that the number of patients who quit because of side effects would be roughly the same for each medication. What actually happened in the study was that, first of all, only about a quarter of the patients made it the full 18 months that was intended for the study. Three-quarters of the patients discontinued the medication before that point. And there were, in fact, statistically significant differences among the drugs in how long patients stayed on the medications. And olanzapine was the drug that came out with the longest period of patient compliance. Fifty percent of the patients made it nine months or more on olanzapine, compared with between four and six months on each of the other medications. The other medications were risperidone, quetiapine, and zeprazidone. Just for those people that maybe aren't familiar with the generic names, so olanzapine and Zyprexa, uh, risperidone, obviously, brisperidol, quetiapine, Seroquel, and which was the... Perfenazine is trilophon. Trilophon. Okay, thank you. So Zyprexa, those folks had the higher potential of making it the whole 18 months. So they stayed longer in the study than with the other drugs. The other prediction, though, about the side effects did turn out to be accurate. There were major differences in side effects among these drugs. But about the same number of patients stopped each of the drugs because of unacceptable side effects. It's just that the side effects for each drug was different. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is the Director of Psychiatry Residency Education at the University of Michigan, Dr. Michael Gibson. Dr. Gibson, can you tell us about how those side effects differentiated drug to drug? Yes. For each drug, there was a single side effect that seemed to be the most problematic, and for each side effect, there was one or two drugs that did better. For olanzapine, the big issue was weight gain and metabolic disturbance. There was far more weight gain in the olanzapine group than with the other drugs. There were changes in cholesterol, overall lipid profile. There was a greater tendency toward hyperglycemia, all of the sorts of things that one would anticipate with what's come to be called the metabolic syndrome. There was an intermediate risk, weight gain and metabolic side effects with risperidone and quetiapine, and a relatively low risk for zeprazidone and perfenazine. What order of magnitude are we talking about here between, say, zeprazidone and olanzapine? If you take as a benchmark a gain of 7% of total body weight from the beginning of the study to the end, then about 35% of the patients in the olanzapine group had significant weight gain compared with about 5% for the zeprazidone group. And then it was 15 to 20% for risperidone and quetiapine. For perfenazine, the big side effect was Parkinsonian symptoms, what we call extrapyramidal side effects, or EPS, slow movements, rigidity, restlessness, um, things like that. And it's well known that the older drugs had more of that. This was particularly important in the profenazine group because the, the study, although it was randomized and double-blind, had a couple of exclusions for randomization. And one was that if a patient had a sustained movement disorder, like tardive dyskinesia, at the beginning of the study, then they would not be randomized to the profenazine. So the patients who had the highest risk for a movement disorder were already excluded from the profenazine arm of the study. 
but even among the patients who'd received antipsychotics and had not had movement disorders in the past, there was a higher rate of movement disorders with perfenazine. 8% of the patients assigned to the perfenazine group quit the study because of that, compared with about 2% of the patients in each of the other groups stopping because of that. Now, were rescue meds allowed, like cogentin or Benadryl? Yes, and benzodiazepines. So we've talked about weight gain, metabolic syndrome, Parkinsonian side effects. What else did you see? For risperidone, there was a slightly higher incidence of the EPS as well, though not at the level of the perfenazine, and far fewer patients quit the study in the risperidone group, but, but more patients complained of those side effects compared with the other drugs. For quetiapine, mostly it was anticholinergic effects, and sedation. Ziprazidone had one of the more benign side effect profiles. There was a little bit of sedation at the very beginning, a little bit of EPS, but other than that, it seemed to be pretty well tolerated. Wow. So really nothing terribly unexpected for those of us that use these medicines in practice. Well, only the fact that the olanzapine came out statistically uh, better than the others. I think most of us felt that they were all going to be comparable. But one of the take-home messages from this actually was the New York Times headline when the, when the study first came out, which I found initially annoying. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought they, they really are onto something here. But their headline basically said, this major trial is completed, all drugs lose. And I thought, gosh, that's, that's very harsh. And what kind of message are we communicating out to particularly the public here? But then when I looked at it, I thought, for the treatment of schizophrenia, we're really looking at treatments that should be continued over many years, possibly over a lifetime. And if the, the drug that is performing the best in, in these long-term studies only has half of the patients making it to nine months, that's kind of a problem. And that actually leads us to what I think is, is the really fundamental take-home message of the KD study, which is not that olanzapine really performed better than the other drugs. It, it really wasn't that much better and with the increased weight gain and metabolic effects, it's clearly not a drug that's for everyone. It may not even be a drug that's for most people. Instead, I think the take-home message is that one size does not fit all. Even when the patients stopped the drug that they were taking, more than half of them agreed to stay in the study and to be reassigned to another drug. That suggests to us that for uh, patients in the community, where we're trying to treat patients over the long haul. If we're nearby, if we're responding, if we have an alliance with that patient, if there are problems, if the drug isn't working well enough, if there are side effects, if the patient is just discontent with the drug for whatever reason, that large percentage of those patients would be willing to continue treatment if we are there and willing to work with them. Responding to the patients really seems to be a key element. And that message, I think, is probably the most important message of the study. So don't give up, keep trying, and clearly there are differences in terms of side effect profiles. Yes. The old drug did just about as well as the newer drugs. What's the bottom line on that? That's true. In terms of efficacy, the old drug did just as well as, as most of the new ones. And, you know, those of us who've worked in this business for a while already knew that that was true. The hope that we had experienced early on when the atypical antipsychotics came out in terms of efficacy, hoping that they did more, they would work for treatment refractory patients, really turned out not to be the case, and, and we were aware of that. And most of us weren't expecting that the older drug was, was going to be less effective than newer ones, that it would have a relatively small 
problem with side effects was a bit of a surprise. But when you consider the side effects that the newer drugs really avoid, which is the extrapyramidal symptoms and tardive dyskinesia, then I think there is a compelling reason still for using the newer drugs. One of the things that did not come out in this study, which is known from other studies, is that risk of tardive dyskinesia with the older drugs runs between 5 and 7% per year of exposure to the drug, compared with a risk of between one-half and 1% per year for the newer drugs. Well, thank you for teaching us all the latest on antipsychotic selection. You're welcome. So thanks today to Dr. Michael Gibson. We've been discussing an evidence-based approach to choosing antipsychotic medications. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.